My work is NAGPRA. That is principal work for me. It is a primary, it's a, it's an obligation. It's a commitment that I made. It's a personal spiritual commitment that I want to complete. That's one of the reasons why I became an archeologist is to make sure that ancestors and their items get returned back and reburied into the ground and given back to the tribes to be housed how they want to. I was horrified when I realized how many ancestral remains UC Berkeley had, and it made me really question attending an institution that has not served my communities historically. Why would you want to keep these? You can't study them, you can't use them. Native people have been wanting them back, so the Native people that want them back just give them back and be done. I just, I don't understand this fight anymore. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast centers Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, present, and the future. This episode is the first of a three-part series where you will hear from Sabine Tologan, Dr. Brittany Arona, Cindy Alvitre, Dr. Vanessa Escovito, Dr. Anthony Burris, Dr. Kucherisling Baldi, Dr. Desiree Martinez, and Alexi Sagona. It is important for us to let our listeners know that this episode focuses on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and will include significant discussion of how ancestral remains, funerary objects, sacred items, and objects of cultural patrimony have been collected in the past, continue to be disturbed in the present, as well as the process of repatriation and reburial. This is an extremely sensitive topic, but a very important one that deals with basic human rights and respect, or the lack thereof, and we want to make this clear up front. This topic, understandably, may be triggering for some. You will hear people discussing, in detail, the ways in which their ancestors' bodies have been and continue to be mistreated. Please take care while listening. Hoku Muktu Ka Sabine Tologan. Um, hello, my name is Sabine Tologan. I'm Chumash, and I am currently a program officer for First Nations Development Institute um, in their California Tribal Fund program. So NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, which was enacted in 1990. It was a response to many years of mistreatment and dehumanization of um, Native American human remains. I really see it as a human rights law bringing some respect and integrity to decades or, or centuries of inappropriate interactions with Native American ancestral remains and belongings that is really an extension of the colonial mindset that we have here in the, in this country. My name is Brittany Arona. I am an enrolled member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Northwestern California. And I'm also an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University. 
uh, where I teach on many different topics as it relates to um, the American Indian and California Indian experience. Uh, my expertise is mainly in environmental justice, water infrastructure, human rights, indigenous human rights, and environmental injustice in um, the United States and California broadly. Much of it had to do with uh, Native advocacy around um, these issues of Native sites being forcibly selected from. So if we think about the time period of Franz Boas, um, who was going to different communities in Washington and basically grave robbing. So the stealing of these funerary objects in sacred sites, items of cultural patrimony um, and funerary objects without the consent of tribes. So Native people really, really fought hard to have this law be created. And it really has a lot to do with Native advocacy at its core. Any law that is passed in the United States that is beneficial to tribes has always been because of tribes who have fought for those things to happen. The United States government doesn't do things out of the goodness of its heart as it relates to Native nations. NAGPRA was a response to on-the-ground organizing that was a response to mistreatment of Native American cemeteries or burials, whichever term you prefer to use, in addition to, you know, the, the study and intellectual prioritization of, you know, using um, Native American ancestral remains for those purposes. And so tribal people organized themselves to bring attention to this issue and help this law come into place. And so it, the, the law really protects Native American burials. But it's, it's limited in scope in that it really focuses on federal lands and tribal lands. But it also speaks to the need for institutions who hold Native American remains and belongings to return those uh, to the lineal descendants or tribes from which they, they belong. And it uses specific definitions of human remains, sacred objects, cultural patrimony, associated and unassociated funerary objects, and so on. I, I think we'll talk later about you know, some of the limitations of uh, those definitions. But it's, it's really attempting to address a huge issue um, that I think to the greater public is, is kind of seen as something that is not something that, that the public is very much aware of, but the people who are directly impacted are deeply aware of, and, and it's deeply important to tribal people that their ancestors and, and their belongings are, are returned and appropriately cared for in, in perpetuity into the future. So my name is Cindy Alvitre. I am uh, affiliated with the Gabrielino Tongva community. My direct affiliation is with Tiat Society and Traditional Council Pimu, which represents the maritime communities of the Los Angeles and Orange County coastal areas. The Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act of 1990 is one of the most significant, if not the most significant, human rights legislation that was created to uh, provide a mechanism for tribes to um, to repatriate, to get their ancestors back, and those uh, those categories associated funerary objects, um, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. Um, it, it became a, le a legal way 
to assure that this would occur. Um, you know, prior to that, it was the extension of the Wild West. Nobody had access to those collections. In most collections, uh, California Indian people, indigenous people, native people were not allowed into those collections because it was the property of science. It was the property of anthropology. It was the property of those academics, those intellectuals, and those researchers. So NAGPRA has really uh, flipped everything on its head. Part of that, uh, the core of it was for every institution to provide an inventory of what you have in your collections. It is a law that helps to repatriate such as sacred objects, regalia, ceremonial objects that are held in museums, institutions that receive federal funding. So that's a big point in the NAGPRA is that these institutions have to receive federal funding to have to comply with NAGPRA. So you're looking at institutions such as universities. So the University of California system is a part of NAGPRA, as are many of the universities that, that receive federal funding across the United States. Cultural institutions such as museums, historic sites, national parks. So those institutions all have to comply with NAGPRA. So NAGPRA affects many different institutions. It affects state institutions. So California State Parks is also under NAGPRA, as is many of um, the state government agencies that hold human remains in their institutions. So what was the safest way to commune with the people? Through the confinement of them on reservations and through the confinement of their things. By collecting and taking those trophies, which was supported by the state of California in their own legislation. I mean, the Act for the Preservation of California Indians, 1852, that was the legitimization of the continued annihilation and taking trophies by paying off and reimbursing bounty hunters. So there you go to the deceased. There were museum practices, and that is anthropology as a support of the imperialistic, the colonialistic the um, practices of this country, which you know people deny and people don't want to talk about. Hesta Natoya Vanessa Escobedo, ni Noramak Hefork Choki Ambus. Hi, my name is Vanessa Escobedo. I'm an enrolled member of the Noramak Wintu Nation. I'm also Hoopa and Chicana. NAGPRA came to fruition from Native activists. Uh, we fought for that law. We we fought really hard. And of course, you know, as laws do and as a settler state will, you know, they only give us a certain amount of autonomy over that law and there's no teeth built into it. So then a lot of the loopholes are very apparent, very fast. But what ended up happening going through legislation, going through all the whole process, you know, it ended up becoming, you know, the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act that we see now. I remember just how excited I was about this law and finding out about it and that we can get all the ancestors returned. And of course, you know, me being just a brand new little scholar, uh, just believing in the system, um, <laughs> uh, quickly shattered because my tribe is not fairly recognized and the normal went to are not fairly recognized. And then kind of going down that path of figuring out like, 
wow, a lot of California tribes are not fully recognized and they're not able to use NAGPRA. And so then I was like, I, I got into grad school and I wanted to focus more on basketry and returning our basketry to our, our peoples. Uh, yeah, I was like, well, why would I spend all this time focusing on something that I can't even, my tribe can't even access? And so I switched it to federal recognition, but NAGPRA has always been something that I love to talk about. I love to write about. Um it also, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating when you see the loopholes. I was on the Native Committee for NAGPRA at, at UC Davis. Um, I did some work with Sac State. And you start to find out the horrific things that happen. How people, when they start to inventory, um, there's, I mean huge atrocities that continue to happen to our ancestors that are in collections. I believe it's Sac State. They separated all the crania from the post crania and you can't figure out who goes back with who. And unless you do DNA, you know, research and they're not willing to do that. And so, um, you know, there's examples of repositories and, and collections being flooded because we're in the basements of these buildings. When I was a grad student, I found out a lot of my anthropology classes were in the same building as ancestors, and, and that was really disturbing. And a lot of it is kind of just said in passing, not like the effect of that on Native students. Um, we already don't feel very welcomed anyways, <laughs> and finding out I'm in a classroom, you know, that's on top of ancestors is not in a good way. I mean, there are many different ways that people or institutions end up with NAGPRA collections. And that can be that the institution itself was a part of the sponsoring of these collections um, going out into um, Native spaces, Native lands, and digging up funerary sites and then placing them into their permanent collections. Some of them came from the collections of anthropologists and archaeologists who um, were just going out and collecting what would become NAGPRA collections um, so it could be personal collections. So, so George High at the NMAI, the National Museum of the American Indian, he was an amateur archaeologist and collected human remains from locations across the country and then donates this collection to what would become the NMAI. So the majority of their collections actually comes from his collecting. So a lot of it also comes from amateur archaeology. So just random people going out and collecting. And Tony Platt writes really well about this, that it was just like a Sunday thing that families would do and go to Native sites and dig up grave sites, essentially, and then collect and then send to museums and cultural institutions. Um, a lot of them also come from like environmental destruction or environmental projects. So in California, many collections come from like the building of levees. Department of Water Resources actually has its own collection. It's not very big, but they have a collection. Um, the construction of highways that are going over native sites. So I think a really important point about NAGPRA too that we should remember is that we often look at it through the lens of anthropology and archeology, span which is the lens that we should be looking at it. But it's also through this lens of environmental destruction that's occurring, like native sites that are being destroyed for highway building for water infrastructure construction. Like we don't necessarily always talk about that in NAGPRA, but it's very, very deeply connected to these things. So it really runs the gamut on what that looks like. There's so many more remains on campuses than people think. It's not just anthropology. So when they started doing inventories uh, on campuses like UC Davis, we found out that there was remains in the like fish and wildlife department. 
There was remains like all over the place. Some weird professor had some obsession with California Indian or Indian peoples and would like, I don't know, keep them on campus. So like we would find more bodies on campus, uh, more remains on campus than, than we thought because it's not just anthropology. It's like we were access to everybody. You remove Native people from this place, from a piece of land. You put a knowledge production place on this land that excuses any traditional knowledge. You have these huge, massive waves of massacres that are happening across the state to remove Native people. Up in uh, near Wiat, there's this example, this massive massacre that's just horrendous. A hundred years later, this dentist, this random ass dentist, we say archaeology, but a lot of these people were like people that just wanted to go dig up things. I know archaeology is very a set field that have people that do this, you know, for professional ways. But there's also the way that these collections got inventory was by some random dentist who goes out and excavates and unearths all of these native bodies that were massacred by the state and then donates them to Berkeley. And then Berkeley keeps them and then doesn't repatriate them. And so... It's a perfect example of manifest destiny. Like we get it, like it's like almost in your face. Like we get to do this to you, massacre you, ignore all of your knowledge, write about all of you, and then never give any of it back and then be like, you're wrong. <laughs> it, it's this perfect example of like justifying the settler state. My name is Anthony Burris and I am a citizen of Ion Band of Miwok Indians. I serve on my tribe's cultural committee and uh, one of the activities that we do as a cultural committee is we implement ancestor repatriation through the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act or through California Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. We'll also use any other processes that are available to us to return ancestors. I'm also an assistant professor over at California State University of Sacramento, and I am just starting my second semester there in the Ethnic Studies Department and Native American Studies program. So I'm working with the consortium of Miwok Nisenon tribes at the moment. We have meetings that are just amongst ourselves, and then we also have meetings every month with some of the major institutions that we're dealing with. When we talk about Miwok and Nisenon ancestors and cultural objects, um, we are talking about a handful of institutions that hold the majority of those ancestors. UC Berkeley and Sacramento State, I would say, have the biggest collections of ancestors and cultural objects. But we're also consulting with UC Davis, state parks, and Caltrans regularly. State parks and Caltrans have significant size collections as well. I have experience being the Tribal Affairs Program Manager for California State Parks over the last few years. Uh, within that program, I manage the NAGPRA program, and uh, that time period is inclusive of AB 275, which was California's attempt to strengthen CalNAGPRA to improve uh, repatriation for California Native American tribes. So it involved a little bit more um, accountability than the NAGPRA program had previously experienced at the state level. So I was uh, very much involved with that transition, um, although I'm not currently there. But essentially, the, the way that I see it, 
United States uh, North American culture has been such that it's just been kind of what I see as an American pastime to dig through Native American burial grounds and uh, collect things. Uh, whether whether it's burial grounds, or, you know, it it could be you know a village site that isn't necessarily a burial ground. Although we know that burials are often you know kept close uh, with the community and, and so on. I, I I can't really say when that started. But I I can ask people to reflect on, you know, if, if you have uh, white ancestors, can you imagine or can you remember uh, them kind of making reference to romanticized stories of, of, you know, Native Americans or, you know, an arrowhead they found, maybe you found an arrowhead. Uh, and that was really cool. Um, and it's it's just honestly part of our culture that that goes unexamined. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this really cool thing and it's going to be exciting and I'm going to keep it and it's going to be mine. I'm going to show it to people and they're going to think it's cool too. And because it's part of history, we're going to feel smart and we're going to, you know, look, research it. Um, we're going to have more information and nothing I'm doing in this process. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm really just, you know, doing a neutral activity or maybe something that's good if they're kind of bringing it to an academic institution and furthering research on on humans or, or whatever they think they're doing. And that was formalized through anthropology and archaeology. And so uh, the history of archaeology includes, you know, just kind of looking at human remains that are of Native American descent uh, and the belongings that that go with those burials as intellectual fodder, you know, something that can simply be explored, something that can be analyzed, be taken from the place that they came from, put into storage, and that the public or our progressing society deserves to understand the past. And that's, you know, obviously problematic. Hey, I'm Kilit, Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi Ahoyet. I'm Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi. I am Hoopa Yurikin Karuk and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley Tribe. And I'm also the department chair of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. In their mind, proof is we tested this bone from 5,000 years ago because that's, they're so disconnected from that history of this landscape. They're trying to like prove it to themselves, what we know, what we embody, who we are. And I think that that's why there's always been this kind of like need for what became the development of like Native American studies. Because here you have a discipline that was created by Native peoples saying our knowledge is histories and place like based understanding is what's the foundation of how we're going to go forward from here. And we're not going to spend all this time proving that knowledge. We're going to build from that knowledge. That's what we're going to do. And that to me is far more powerful. And so all the time I'll say to people, that's what we're trying to, this is our discipline. I constantly am asking people, what are they for? What did you study that was so important? What's the thing that you did that I'm like, thank goodness you dug up ancestral remains for that study. Uh, I haven't found, nobody's given me the answer. There's never been like a satisfying answer. I had one anthropologist when I posed this question who said, well, we're doing a study so that we can tell you 
if California Indian people breastfed their children? And then I was like, I can tell you that. Yes. And then he was like, no, like we can do the studies of like the ancient primitive California Indian man from like 5,000 years ago and tell you if they breastfed. And I was like, I can tell you that too. Yes. And then they were like, no, but we can test that. And I was like, I don't understand. Part of it is this continued belief that somehow we can't possibly be those people that we were disconnected from, that genocide was uh, successful at genociding all of us. And the ones that are here now are somehow different than the ones who were here then. But we know we are unbroken ancestral connections to our peoples. We know that we embody like the blood, the spirit, the memory of our peoples. We know that like the knowledge we carry on is of this place thousands upon thousands of years old. We know that. My name is Desiree Martinez and I am a member of the Gabrielino Tongva community and I am a practicing indigenous archeologist. I am currently president of Cogstone Resource Management, which is a cultural resources firm here in Southern California. And we do work all across the country. And um, on my personal life, I also do a lot of work with various Native American communities, helping to get their ancestors back into the ground. Although NAGPRA has been in place for over 30 years, there's still a lot of entities out there that have yet to fully comply with NAGPRA. And particularly for larger museums that have large collections, it has taken a long time. But there also are smaller entities, you know, knowing how to comply with NAGPRA is a specialized knowledge. And I've been working within NAGPRA parameters for almost my whole life. For me, personally, it's very important. Um, you know, one of the big things that I was taught while growing up is you always respect the grave. You know, you don't disturb it. Like even going to a cemetery, you don't walk on on the graves. You you're quiet, you're respectful etc. You shouldn't disturb them. And a lot of that, the reason why you don't want to disturb them is because they have their own journey into the next life. And if you disturb them and they don't go back into the ground or they're taken out of the ground, then their journey is, is cut short. And so it becomes very important to make sure that those ancestors um, get back in the ground. But one of the things too, is you want to think about in an American sense, in an enlightened sense, civil rights. You know, those ancestors did not give their permission to be dug up and examined. Um, their relatives didn't give permission. And when we think about informed consent from the legal level, they didn't. Never, never at once, I always say, my ancestors never thought that they would be on a museum shelf being studied by undergraduate students under a microscope. You know, they wouldn't even thought that it was even, you know, a possibility. And so why do we think it's okay to treat them as such? And so it's a matter of a respect. You know, I'm doing everything in my power to not only get my ancestors returned, but all ancestors, you know, and it's not just about native ancestors. It's, you know, also about, you know, thinking about Egyptian mummies, you know, and how they're being treated in on display and x-rayed. And yeah, it's cool quote unquote, but they didn't want to be treated that way either. So it's not just about native remains, it's about all of our remains. It's, it's acknowledging that we're human. And as human beings, we deserve to be respected and be able to live and die the way that we thought we were going to. Um, so when we talk about 
the history of the sites here in the Sacramento area, there's some lesser known names that come up. Um, mainly Jeremiah Lillard, who's fairly unknown um, on a wider scale. And there's also Robert Heiser. And um, if you study California at all, uh, California Indians, California anthropology, you do know the name Robert Heiser. So he's a little bit more well-known than Lillard. Um, but Lillard had a huge impact on the area. Um, he's not a, he's not trained in archaeology or anthropology. He has a background in agriculture. But um, in the 1920s, he becomes president of the Sacramento Junior College, what we now know as Sacramento City College. Back then it was Sacramento Junior College. And he, as president, decided to go ahead and put together a team of um, folks that went around and excavated the valley. They hit hundreds of sites in the valley. And, you know, I'm using that term excavate, but to travel folks, these are desecrations. So they did, they did this under the guise of uh, salvage archaeology, right? There was a lot of development happening here, and they were going out and um, hitting a lot of these sites that were being impacted by agricultural activities or, you know, might be slated to be impacted by other sorts of activities related to infrastructure development here in the state. And so when we talk about UC Berkeley and the massive collections they have there and the massive collections of Miwok and Nisanon ancestors and cultural objects we have there, a lot of that's the result of this um, of these activities at Sacramento Junior College. When Lillard retired, the school took a more vocational turn and all of these collections sat in a hallway for a few years. And then eventually Robert Heiser facilitates this transfer of those collections from Sacramento Junior College to UC Berkeley, and that's where they've remained since that time period of you know the mid 20th century. It's like a real personal connection to the ownership of history, story, and also it calls into question all kinds of things when you start to demonstrate that California Indians should be the people that are primarily in charge of indigenous remains and indigenous objects. It starts to make feel like they should also be primarily in charge of the shell mounds that they're still fighting over and they should primarily be in charge of other sites of interest and importance. And, and I think they see that, which is why they get so protective over this thing that when you start to tell other people like, oh, there's like thousands upon thousands of people in the collection of UC Berkeley and uh, they're all housed in boxes. Mishmin Truhis, Kanraka Alexi Sagona, and I am a member of the Amamutsun tribal band and I am currently uh, a graduate student at UC Berkeley uh, in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. A lot of us at Berkeley know that Berkeley drags their feet when it comes to NAGPRA. I was horrified when I realized how many ancestral remains UC Berkeley had of Ohlone ancestors. And I chose to come to Berkeley as a graduate student after hearing about these things. And, and it made me really question and try to, you know, keep myself accountable of knowing that I'm attending an institution that has not served uh, my communities historically. It's really saddening to think about how UC Berkeley has kept Ohlone remains because they were culturally unidentifiable because we don't have federal recognition. It's sort of, you know, this load of BS that folks try to just, you know, perpetuate to to maintain their power and authority and legitimate their decisions not to be helpful. I, I was really struck by a conversation I had with someone who works closely with NAGPRA talking about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. 
And the letter of the law, you know, UC Berkeley has followed to a T. They haven't done anything illegal. The spirit of the law, Berkeley seems to have fallen short many times over. And the spirit of NAGPRA should be about healing. It, it should be about, you know, identifying and, and reckoning with the past harms of archaeologists and what they've done to Native people. And I think with Cal Nagpra, the spirit of the law is, is coming about a bit more given its ability to work with non-recognized tribes. Um, it seems like there's more capacity now inside UC Berkeley to work with, you know, folks with Nagpra uh, regarding Nagpra. There's more staff. There's other committees that have been organized. UC Berkeley has a very large collection of human remains that they still hold and have historically been very hesitant to fully comply with NACPRA. That's very much connected to with the history of the development of anthropology here in the state of California. Alpha Krober, very much deeply a part of that. So Berkeley holds the largest collection in the state, which is extremely difficult. Also, California State Parks has quite a large collection as well. That was my former employer. I, I worked there and um, they have many items of uh, human remains, items of cultural patrimony and funerary objects. Much of that comes from the development of the state park system in California. I believe there are 28 state parks. And so archaeological collection happened in those parks as well. And then also just like the collections of anthropologists and archaeologists in that work for the state are a part of those collections as well. Those are two major institutions that hold uh, NAGPRA collections. And then also there's a tendency to forget about the smaller places, whether that be the CSUs. So many of the CSUs hold small NAGPRA collection, small, you know, maybe not the best word, but they have smaller, what would be considered smaller uh, collections. And also, I think something that should really be discussed a lot more, and it's something I, I think about quite a bit, um, is that these collections were separated. Often different researchers across institutions would send each other these human remains or items of cultural patrimony or funerary objects and study them. And then they would never be reconnected again. I mean, that's a part of it, too, is that sometimes these collections get scattered across different institutions. So a lot of my work was trying to figure out where portions of collections were, which was and is extremely difficult, especially when like parts of people were separated. It's awful. It's, it's really, truly awful. And so um, much of that makes it, you know, difficult to repatriate, too, because you want to repatriate somebody whole or you want to repatriate a site or a funerary site whole so that person is at peace. I think a big thing is um, asking these hard questions. And I, and I think many Native people in California are doing that, asking how um, an institution got these collections 
um, what the history of that institution is, where they got our ancestors. All of those questions are really important. I think connecting these issues with a historic and present violence is really important. And Native people in California are really good about doing that. And, you know, I'm just one person and a part of a genealogy of people that have been doing this for decades. You know, when you're talking about anthropology to students or even to people who are from the public and they don't quite get it, you can say, yes, you have disturbed our ancestors. They really don't understand it completely until, and what I've found is until they they have physical encounter with it or it's part of their experience. Um, and, you know, being a teacher of this, these disciplines, it becomes very difficult. You know, like I, I do tell my students, I said, honestly, I said, I don't have a lot of good to report. I said, I have very little good to report when I talk about the history of anthropology, the colonial processes. I said, you, you need to understand that it, you need to understand what is that process? How, do, how do you colonize a people? And number one, it's a dehumanization of a population. And that means removing everything that is remotely and physically and uh, uh, the core of their identity from their presence, beginning with the people, you know, their medicine people, their leaders, their religious leaders, and then to everything else, every physical presence of the people by the complete destruction of their village sites. And it goes on very gen each generation. When we talk about like the gold rush or the mission systems, it's a colonial practice that it is, is, is it part of the dehumanization and the complete extraction of any evidence of our presence of California Indians? Are we to that point? You know, what are the solutions? Are there solutions? And I think we're back to what this conversation is about, that we first need to acknowledge that discipline within our universities, you know, these institutions that we embrace and we interact with because museums, universities, what their practices are. But those practices are going to continue, you know, maybe innocently with students who don't have the knowledge of this. And in most cases, uh, most students are not aware. Number one of Native Americans, but yet California Indians who are, we are statistically invisible. The invisibility is perpetuated within our universities. When you hear this term salvage archaeology, it almost sounds, sounds somehow altruistic. And it's not. I, I think a lot of these folks that were running around digging up our sites, there's a lot of self-interest there, right? For instance, with Jeremiah Lillard, he's constantly publishing articles about the exploits of his ex excavation crew in the in the newspaper there at the junior college. So there was some amount of status seeking on his part. This overall issue of the fact that our ancestors, our cultural objects are being held by these various institutions, by these various museums, it's hugely impactful to my tribe. Um, I would say it's hugely impactful to other tribes. The displacement as part of that colonial process is the dehumanization and the removal of all evidence of your existence. There's a point, too, that there was a severance from the cemeteries. Think about those generations, I mean, where people knew, and I guess in on reservation and where you have um, like the rancherias and you have your traditional land base, you know where your ancestors are. 
But when we get into urban areas with first contact tribes, such as ourselves and, you know, relatives up in San Francisco area, they all the major cities on coastal California, right? San Francisco, Santa Barbara, L.A., San Diego, that severs them from the memory and from the practices of regularly visiting these places. It's just kind of like with the traditional songs of cycles that they broke a generation. One generation of breaking from that direct contact with those spaces, it influences and impacts the people for multiple generations. To recover from that is 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 difficult. And what I'm saying is when we're talking about the cemeteries, people just forget over generations. Why? Because there's been a distraction. There's a detraction from it. You know, it's been 30 years and there's still, and I can't remember what the 20,000 ancestors that are still on the shelves. It actually might be more than that. Um, I don't remember what the the last number was, but, you know, making sure somebody has to be watching them and somebody has to be putting the pressure, which includes fines, which includes lawsuits. And, you know, a lot of tribes could sue civilly if they had the money and time to do it. And so they're really using the legislation as well as the federal compliance process to make sure that these entities are doing what they need to be doing. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Daniel Stonebloom, and Martin Rizzo-Martinez. Interviews by Martin. All audio engineering and editing by myself. Music by G. Gonzalez. This podcast is produced with support from California State Parks Foundation. For more information and resources, please follow the links in the notes. And thank you for listening.